Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that could lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. This morning, we'll speak with Newsday columnist Bob Glauber on his new book with our Keyshawn Johnson, on today's Super Bowl battle between the Bengals and Rams, and of course, issues surrounding the Rooney Rule. So if you're preparing to have a nice breakfast, maybe you're getting that Super Bowl chili working this morning, maybe getting ready for a virtual sunrise service or hitting the road for an early run. Thanks for making us a part of your morning. We'll talk football with Bob Glauber next on 98.7 ESPN New York. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Well, Bob Glauber has covered the NFL since 1985. He's been a Newsday NFL columnist since 1992. He's been twice selected as the New York State Sports Writer of the Year by the National Sports Media Association. Oh, by the way, he's president of the Football Writers of America as well. Glauber is the author of Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate in the NFL in the 80s. Most recently, along with our Keyshawn Johnson, collaborated on a new book, The Forgotten First, Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Marion Motley, Bill Willis, and the breaking of the NFL color barrier. Join me in welcoming Bob Glauber. Hi, Bob. How are you? Larry, I'm doing great. How are you? And thank you, as always, for pronouncing my last name correctly. It's, it's a rarity in this world. Well, listen, we, we, we've been in enough road stories and, and road trips and locker rooms that I should know your name pronounced correctly. Yeah, I should. I, right? I, I guess. But, you know, you, you never know. I appreciate it. Always good to talk to you, Larry. <laughs> My pleasure. So, Bob, you've got to – first of all, it's Super Bowl Sunday, so this is – I always love talking to you on Super Bowl Sunday because you've been in L.A. all week. You know what's going on. You have everything done. But first of all, let's talk about this new book that you and Keyshawn combined on, The Forgotten First. And – just tell me, what, how, how did this come about? How did you and Keyshawn Johnson sit down and say, hey, let's write a book together? Yeah. Well, you know, Larry, this is something that I've been kicking around for a number of years. And just being in NFL locker rooms, you've been there. The, the NFL locker room is probably the most diverse place, workplace in America, right? Mm-hmm. It, it just It's a melting pot of people of religions, of races, of backgrounds, of ethnicities, and it's it's incredible, really. And they all gather together with the one common goal of trying to win football games. And it's really, I think it's the best example of everyone trying to live together um, and, and working toward the same goal. So I'm just, I'm literally standing around the Giants locker room one day, maybe three years ago, probably waiting to talk to Odell Beckham or you know, interview some players. And I'm, I'm just looking around, I'm like, you know, I just was curious about, well, this is such a diverse place. Was it always like this? And, you know, I kept going back in time. I started covering the NFL in 1985. And, yes, it was a, it, there were many African-American players in the league, not as many as there are today. And then I said, okay, go back further, go back further. And, you know, wait a minute. Was there, was there a Jackie Robinson of the NFL that I don't know about? Now, Larry, I've been covering the NFL more than 30 years, and if I don't know the answer to that question, I, I, I think there are many sports fans and most sports fans who don't. And, and the answer is yes, you know, there, there, there is this complicated past of the integration of the NFL. And literally Googled on my phone in the middle of the Giants locker room, came across the name Kenny Washington. Mm. And, you know, as the first black player signed in the modern NFL. And I'm like, okay, I did not know that. Um, I'm ashamed to say that, but I'm not alone. And Keyshawn was not alone. So, so as, as the book idea kind of progressed, um, 
I, I felt it was best to, to do it with someone who I knew who could help tell the story um, in, in a meaningful way. And, and Keyshawn, I've known him for 25 years since he got to the Jets. And we, we hit it off on this topic immediately. He was fascinated by it. Two of these guys, Kenny Washington and Woody Stroh, grew up five miles from where Keyshawn Johnson grew up, turned into a star football player and starred at USC. He played on the same field as those guys played more than 75 years ago. So it just, it just went from there, Larry, and it, and it became just this labor of love for both of us to try to tell the stories and shine a spotlight on four players, Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Bill Willis, and Marion Motley, who permanently integrated pro football 75 years ago. And what's interesting about it, and you'll, without giving too much of the book away in a couple of minutes, I want you to introduce us to these four gentlemen. But the interesting thing I found out about them is they're similar, but they have different backgrounds to get to where they got to, right? Oh, yeah. They, they, they came from, like, you know, Kenny Washington and, and Woody Strode both grew up in, in L.A. Uh, and, you know, they, they were a few years apart. Uh, Woody is an older was an older player, but they were teammates at UCLA, and they were best friends almost immediately. And they, they were the only two black players on the UCLA football team in 1936. So they reintegrated, they integrated the UCLA program. Um, so they had a lot in common, and, they, and their experiences kind of drew them together, and they became best friends for life, essentially. And then back in Ohio, um, while, while those guys were growing up, Bill Willis uh, was, was a schoolboy star in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, went to uh, Ohio State, was drafted, was uh, signed by Paul Brown and recruited by Paul Brown, who, of course, went on to, to form the Cleveland Browns. And then Mary Motley was, Mary Motley played high school football against Paul Brown's team in Massillon, Ohio. So Mary Motley grows up in Canton, right, in the shadow of, of what would become the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He lost three games as a high school player, and all three games were to Paul Brown's team about, you know, 10 miles away. So they connected when they were both in the Navy um, at, a, at the Great Lakes Naval uh, Base in the north of Chicago. And then they came together with the Cleveland Browns in 1946. So very circuitous routes that all four of them took to get to the place where all four began their professional careers and, and integrated modern pro football permanently I'm in that 1946 season, and this is now the 75th anniversary of that first season. My guest is Bob Glauber, author, journalist, president of the Football Writers Association, columnist. He's my guest here on New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Bob, I want to take you down this road, and I'm very curious to see how, how, how you felt about this while you're doing your research, because... African-American reporters writing for African-American newspapers had dual roles. Like It wasn't just that they were able to report what was going on and report the news and report sports, but they were also, Bob, setting up tryouts, in Jackie Robinson's case, and some players in the Negro Leagues, and, and had to speak out. And their voices were respected in a way that I don't know that journalist, uh, journalist voices overall are respected today. How did that, how did you feel about that as you're doing your research and the role of, of the journalist during this time? Well, that was, that's a great point that you bring up, Larry. And I didn't know the prevalence of and, and influence of um, the, the community of black sports writers back in, back in the day. And it was a very, a, a very um, 
passionate group of writers, and they, they kind of did. You know, some, there's this one writer who kind of forced forced the, the NFL to integrate in 1946, and, and that, I'm not being, uh, that's not hyperbole. There's a guy named Hallie Harding who, who wrote for the Los Angeles Herald, uh, Los Angeles Tribune, rather, and he was the one who pointed out to the L.A. Coliseum Commission when they were hearing the Rams' plan to move from Cleveland to Los Angeles and play in the L.A. Coliseum. Hallie Harding and many of his colleagues stepped up at this meeting in January, which was you know, probably going to be a rubber stamp um, approving the Rams' move to Los Angeles and letting them play in the Coliseum, a public building. But no, Hallie Harding stood up and said, hold on a second. You, you, can't, you, you want to have this professional football team play in a public building, then you need to integrate that team. You need to have a black player, at least one black, black player, on your team because this is a public building taxpayers paid for it black men and women helped build this building um and and back then you know this was right after the after the war and black soldiers participated and helped defeat nazism and and the japanese empire so there there was a really a groundswell of of outcry to say hey everyone needs an equal opportunity here um, and this is before the civil rights movement, but this is a very real, a very passionate subject. And and that really forced the Rams to, to kind of reconsider what they were doing, and it backed them into a corner, essentially. And they agreed at this meeting, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have Kenny Washington try out for the team. And eventually Kenny Washington, who was starred at UCLA and was a very, very popular player in Los Angeles, he played semi-pro ball for the Hollywood Bears. And he was widely known in the L.A. market, so he was like a really good person to kind of latch on to, to kind of, you know, be in this fight. And, and they eventually signed him, and he became, um, on March 21st, 1946, he became the first African-American player to be signed by an NFL team after what was a 12-year ban on black players in, in the National Football League. So there's all kinds of interesting um, subtexts and, um, reasons for why the NFL was not integrated fully until 1946, um, and it's uh, you know it's it, it's one of those stories, Larry. That you know, does the NFL want to embrace that part of its history? <laughs> well, it hasn't in the past. I think they do accept it now, and I think you'll see some things that um, will lead you to believe that the NFL once, once they realize this, you know, t- today's. NFL, um, they, they, they've kind of embraced it more. You know, not that it's the same, but when I read that part in the book, it took me back to the NFL leveraging uh, the state of Arizona to say, listen, if you want to have a Super Bowl, then you have to make Dr. Martin Luther King's holiday a legal holiday in your state. Otherwise, you're not getting the Super Bowl. So it was always, Bob, it's always leverage, right? It's always, it seems to always be the yeah. art of the deal in, in whatever it is. Yep, I agree with you, Larry. And, you know, Dee Smith was talking about this, the executive director of the NFL Players Association, talked about this at his press conference during the week about how, you know, this stuff, progress doesn't come from goodwill. It doesn't come by accident, right? Progress comes from attention being paid to something that means something to, 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 to people and a push for it. There's progress and there is, you know, you, you take two steps forward, you take five steps back, you take ten steps forward, you take, you know, so eventually you kind of try to grind your way 
to to a better time for for, for people. And um, yeah, that that that's a good way of looking at it, Larry. Leverage is, is very important. And and the I will say though that while the Rams were were forced into integration essentially, the Browns. Um, now this is the All America Football Conference back in '46. Paul Brown founds his own team and names them after himself. Um, but he was the branch Ricky of this story. Branch mm-hmm. Ricky, of course, the general manager of the Dodgers, signs Jackie Robinson, and it's a very purposeful and willful uh, event. And and Branch Ricky kind of enjoyed uh, being that. You know, he, he enjoyed the celebrity of being. Um, the white general manager who signed the first black player in, in Major League Baseball. He, he liked it. But Paul Brown was essentially the branch Ricky who who willingly signed two black players, Motley and Willis, players he had known. And, and he played black players when he was a high school coach in, in Ohio, which was very rare. And so Brown, the, Brown gets credit for being maybe the smartest football coach in NFL history. He, he, he gave so much to the game in terms of strategy and you know looking at film um, sending in plays you know via messenger and you know all kinds of advances that Paul Brown is, is credited for and is in the Hall of Fame for but he also took care of this he also integrated his team in, in a in a kind of a quiet way but but he knew what he was doing was going to be very controversial he just tried not to draw attention to it so that his players um, wouldn't have to kind of bear the responsibility and the, and, and the backlash that, that came along with it. And there was backlash, make no mistake. You know, Bob, whether it's off the field of play or on the field of play, it takes somebody to be the first to do what is the right thing to do, right? And it has to be, depending on who, what the situation is, in this case we're talking about not allowing African-Americans to play uh, football, um, it has to be somebody that says, okay, I'm going to take that mantle to do that because that's the right thing to do. And it's got to be somebody, Bob, that's not African-American, right? It's got to be somebody who, once again, has the leverage and does the right thing to make sure that, hey, you know what? This is wrong. Or it's, hey, you know what? I, I think these these players can help me win. <laughs> no, matter what, no matter what the real reason is, the fact of it is it's the action that becomes important. And then, you know, the rest of, the rest of history happens and changes. Right, and that's a very good point. That's exactly what Paul Brown did. Now, you know, the the African American journalism community was really a big part of, of mm-hmm. the integration of pro football, especially in L.A. And it, it was that in the East as well. You know, Bill Nunn Jr. was was a reporter and a writer and columnist for um, Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Courier for like thirty years. He eventually joined the Steelers as a scout and is now in the Hall of Fame. Um, so, so he drew a lot of attention to it, too. And there, was a lot of, um, there were a lot of columns and pieces in the, in the black newspapers in the 1940s, especially when the war was being won, that really pushed for integration in sports, uh, baseball primarily, but football as well. And it was, you know, it was not easy. You know, progress did not come instantly. And, and integration did not come instantly in terms of the full integration of the NFL. You know, Willis and, and Motley and, and uh, you know, they, they were the first, but they, this was not like all, all of a sudden 
uh, you know, everything opened up and, and there were all black players, you know, <laughs> you, you could have equal opportunity. It was just not that way. It took some time for owners and general managers to, to understand that, you know, it was okay to, to have black players because there really weren't more than, say, two dozen black players in the NFL um, in, in the 1940s, in the late 40s. So eventually the AFL comes, comes, you know, comes around and owners like Lamar Hunt, you know, actually actively scouted black colleges uh, for players. So the AFL uh, really went a long way toward further integrating the NFL because it was a competitive league and, and you know, they had to try to get the best players. That's the voice of Bob Glauber, who, along with Keyshawn Johnson, has put together a fascinating book. It's called The Forgotten First. Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Marion Motley, Bill Willis, and The Breaking of the NFL Color Barrier. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. When New York Sports and Beyond returns, why were African Americans not allowed to perform in professional football? Well, there's a specific person that stood in their way. We'll discuss it when New York Sports and Beyond returns on 98.7 ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue my conversation with journalist, columnist, and author Bob Glauber. All right, Bob, there's always a villain. (laughs) In every book, in every story, there is a villain. There is a face of the person that makes this book so interesting. That person is George Preston Marshall. Bob, who is this guy? What's his story? (laughs) Well, modern fans of the Washington Commanders, you know, a.k.a. the Washington football team, and uh, might know George Preston Marshall as the guy whose monument was torn down uh, less than two years ago after the George Floyd killing in Minnesota. Uh, you know, obviously it was an outpouring of uh, emotion in the country, and many statues, including that one, came down. And George Preston Marshall had been the owner of, of, of the Washington team, moved them from Boston, and he was an avowed segregationist. He, he did not hide his racism. He did not hide the fact that he did not and refused, willingly refused, to have black players on his team, um, really until the 1960s. And it's a, it's a pretty remarkable slash sad um, commentary on, on, on what you know, darkness lay in that man's heart, because he, he just refused to have the Washington team integrated he felt that that would go against the fans that, that wanted to see that team. Even though the, you know, the Washington team was, was really bad toward the end of that run, uh, he just refused to integrate. It was only under pressure from the John F. Kennedy administration that he finally integrated the team in 1962. So he is the villain in this, in this story, Larry. But I will tell you that you know the other owners, and, and you're talking about Tim Mara of the Giants and uh, the Rooney family and uh, the Bidwill family, the, you know, the other owners did go along mm-hmm. with that unofficial ban on black players from 1934 to 1945. Um, but, but certainly George Preston Marshall was the most vocal and he was unapologetically racist till his dying day. And in fact, after his dying day, because as part of his will, he stipulated that none of his money from his foundation could go toward any causes that, promoted integration. I mean, how, 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 how about that? Mm. It's crazy. It, it, it's just crazy. And it no, struck it, me again, Bob, because later on you talk about how Art Rooney said he regretted going along with owners 
for not allowing African Americans to play. And it it took me back to you know one of the things that the NFL really regrets in a two week uh, build up to the Super Bowl was last week and the whole controversy around Brian Flores and the text from you know Bill Belichick and all the all the concerns about the Rooney Rule and African American head coaches and minority coaches in the National Football League. Yeah, that's the thing, Larry, that um, Keyshawn and I thought it was really important to kind of make sure that this story related to what's happening today. Because this is not just, uh, okay, the NFL integrates and la-di-da, here we are. Well, yes, it did integrate um, technically, but there are challenges um, ahead, and, and just as there were challenges back then. And, and, and Art Rooney did call that. His, you know, his unwillingness to, to integrate the, the Steelers until, until the 1940s, one, you know, his biggest regret. And the family doesn't look back on that with pride. However, that, that family is probably the most progressive um, ownership group in, in the uh, NFL. Mm-hmm. And it's no accident that you know, it's called, the Rooney Rule comes from that franchise that um, tried to push to get more equality for African-American head coaches. So it's certainly not um, anywhere near where the NFL wants it to be, where really where it should be. Um, so this is a continuing um, type of situation that you know has no end. The continuum of history and the arc of history goes back, but it also kind of goes forward. And, and there, you know, there's one uh, Mary Motley, right? Great fullback, Hall of Fame fullback for the mm-hmm. Cleveland Browns. They won an NFL championship and. Um, he wanted to be an assistant coach in 1965. He, he desperately just wanted to coach, not a head coach, an assistant coach. And he went to Paul Brown. Now, Paul Brown integrated on the field you know, for playing, but he didn't have position for Marion Motley, nor did um, Otto Graham, his quarterback, who had become the head coach in Washington. That wasn't happening with George Preston Marshall owning that team. <laughs> and, and, he was so, and Marion Motley was so frustrated, he wrote a letter to the, to the Cleveland newspaper expressing his disgust um, with the Browns and calling them racist, calling Art Modell, the team owner then, racist. Um, there was a, a big to-do about that, and, and there were a lot of hard feelings on both sides. But you know, all Mary Motley wanted to do was coach, and he never, ever got the chance for the rest of his life. One of his uh, yeah. former teammates said Mary Motley died of a broken heart yeah. uh, because he couldn't coach. So... That's 1965. You fast forward to now, I mean, you, you have opportunities as assistant coaches, African-American coaches, but the head coaching um, position is still, it's, it's still not where it, it needs to be, Larry. I, you know, I, think, I think that seems to be pretty obvious. Um, other people would argue, well, no, you just, you know, just hire the best guy, don't look at color. You, know, you shouldn't look at color. Well, yeah, in a perfect world, that's true, but um, it's, it's really not a perfect world, and there is an inequity and there is an imbalance of, of the head coaching community, um, especially when it, you know, you're talking about a league at 70% African American, and it's also 34% of all coaches, assistant coaches, are African American, yet their representation is just not there at the head coaching level. Well, all you need to know, Bob, and you're right, in a perfect world, it shouldn't be necessary, but. If it was a perfect world, there would be no need for a Rooney Rule. And so that's why you have to make exactly. the adjustments, right? Because it's not working exactly. the way it should be. <laughs> yeah. Right. There shouldn't be. There shouldn't have to be a Rooney Rule. 
you know, for those who say, don't, well, get the rule out of there. Okay, great. Then what? Yeah, exactly. Where's the accountability? Um, there, there, there wouldn't be. And I think, I think Dan Rooney probably benefited and experienced the Rooney rule more than anyone else. You know, the man who, whose, whose name, whose his name is used on that rule had it himself, where in 2005, he had a head coach opening when Bill Cowell retired. And he looked like he was about to hire Russ Grimm, the Hall of Fame guard, who had a good coaching career. Looked like that was going to be the case, but Dan had to interview a minority candidate. And when he talked to Mike Tomlin, Mike Tomlin blew him away. Mm-hmm. So Mike Tomlin gets that job and, and goes on a Hall of Fame trajectory for his coaching. And so Dan Rooney himself benefited by opening up his mind to the idea that, you know what, there, there are different ways of looking at things, and you can benefit uh, from having diversity at, at really every level of your organization. And, you know, that, that seems to be the perfect example. Now, Bob, I don't want to give away too much of the book because I want people to go out and buy it and, and, and just sit back and read it and enjoy it. And to for adults, pass it on to your kids who love football so they have an understanding of what the history of football was. Because, you know, as reporters, right, we sit sometimes and we criticize what well, he doesn't even know. We'll ask a we'll ask a player a question, right? And he'll look at you like, I don't know who that is. And we thought, boy, how could he not know who that is? But so here's an opportunity for you to learn about the history of the National Football League from, you know, the perspective of the changes that were made and, and the fact that African Americans were involved in a football league that wasn't the NFL at the time. There was a time of period of a decade or more when they weren't allowed to play and then they were able to play again. But here's the thing I want you to do. Um we could say that, hey, listen, obviously from the title, they made it, they were able to play. But Bob, as you alluded to earlier, it wasn't real easy. And I want you to share the story of Bill Willis with our audience and the, and the travails he faced in uh, trying to get to be a pro. Well, Bill Willis, you know, again, grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and was just a terrific uh, player at, in high school, Columbus East High School. And his, his older brother, uh, was a great running back, so Bill Bill didn't want to become a running back because he, he he was afraid he couldn't live up to his older brother's legacy. So he became a, a guard on the offensive line and a and a defensive lineman, and he, it turned out he was just a quick, fast, and he was the forerunner of the NFL's middle linebacker. And um, he, he did not want to go to a, a Big Ten school; he just felt uncomfortable with it. But he he was connected to Paul Brown by his old high school coach and. They hit it off, and Paul Brown recruited him to go to Columbus, uh, to go to Ohio State. He became the first black player at Ohio State. And, you know, Bill Willis and, and Motley as well, when they, when they first, their first year uh, with the Browns, they were about to play a game against the Miami Seahawks and in Miami. And for some reason, Paul Brown told both of them, um, listen, I'm going to leave you behind for this game. I'm going to pay you. Here's your game check, and I'm just going to, you know, we're not going to bring you to the game. And there was a little confusion about, you know, what was going on. And as it turned out, um, at that time, Larry, it was illegal. It was illegal for black players to be on the same field as white players in a professional athletic game. So there there were death threats. Um, issued against Marion Motley and Bill Willis, and and they came through Paul Paul Brown's office, and he, and he got wind of it, and he said, I'm not I'm just not risking that for my players, 
And they found out, you know, sometime after that that, that was the case. And then those both of those guys, and, and Strode and, and uh, Washington as well, but more Willis and Motley because they were in a very competitive league and, and they were in the prime of their careers physically. They took all sorts of abuse during games. One, one player um, once put razor blades in his hand wraps to, to try to cut uh, Bill Willis when, when he was trying to tackle them. So, you know, there were just these kind of, and, you know, the, the racist taunts and the, and the cheap shots issued. These guys went through very much what Jackie Robinson did. Um, but, but, you know, history has kind of not reflected that. And, and, and it's been kind of not covered up, but just forgotten. And that's why that forgotten first really, really does apply. That, you know, nobody really knows what these guys went through, but they went through a ton. They did. They really did. And, um, Bob, I'm just curious, as you and Keyshawn finished the book and you're, it's, it's written, it's done, what was that conversation like between the two of you after having interviewed family members and read accounts and just going through all the research and everything and the book is done, you sit back and you reflect on it and you just, what, what did you walk away with the project? You know, I think we both learned so much um, about that time, about today's NFL um, and really how, how history does connect. And, you know, Key, Key is a, a history major at, at USC. That was, his, that was his degree. So he's always had a curiosity about it. And I think when, when we were finished with it, he had a greater understanding of where he came from. And, 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 and a really, you know, Keyshawn has this reputation, oh, give me the damn ball, Keyshawn, uh, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You, you remember. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, absolutely. On, Keyshawn's a very smart, aware, um, savvy, and I think he came away thinking, wow, I, you know, I, I understand where I come from now, and I understand that these guys made it possible for Keyshawn Johnson to have a career. You know, not directly, obviously, but, but really a lot of the players, I mean, they, they stand on the shoulders of, of these guys who – went through a ton um, to just be able to have the right to play and, and made it easier for, for generations after them to play. And Keyshawn, I think, had a greater understanding, a greater appreciation for, for his own career after realizing what those guys had gone through, especially Larry. And this one really got me, especially when we were talking about doing the book, that he walks off the same field at USC, hmm. at Memorial Coliseum, this iconic building. He's walking off that same field that Kenny Washington walked off of in 1939 after an unbeaten season to a standing ovation from 103,000 people at that stadium who cheered the end of his college career because it looked like he was not going to play football again because the Mm -hmm. NFL did not have black players and did not draft him. He might have been the number one overall pick in the 1940 draft, but there were no black players in the league. So Keyshawn kind of realized um, just the, the, the history that connected those guys to him. And it was a pretty cool moment. You know, just the thought, and, and I'm going to share with you before we talk about the Super Bowl game today, I'm going to share with you just reading the book and walking away with it and just having conversations with uh, my grandson about it and just talking about the lack of options, Bob, is just the the, the – transitory thing that jumps out at you the lack of options and you just said it for players who now 
I don't know if I NCAA. I'm only going to play one year because I want to go to the pros. <laughs> you know the options that you have uh, in the National Football League. Well, listen, I know I'm going to let me let me let me sit out a bowl game because I don't want it to hurt my draft status as I go forward to get drafted. It's going to affect my money. The lack of options that that era of athlete played in African American played in, be it football or basketball or baseball, to know that. The only way you could continue is maybe in the barnstorming league if you were, you know, in, in baseball or similar in, in football or, you know, the Harlem Wrens and the great teams of the 30s and 40s in, the, in, in basketball because they weren't allowed to play in, quote, unquote, professional sports in whatever field. It's, it just, it makes you shake your head and the frustration they must have gone through to know that this is it. Like I got to go out now and find, try to find a way to get a real job in also a society that in a lot of ways was as racist off the field as it was on the field. Yeah, there's, it's really startling. And uh, you think about, well, the 1930s and forties for, for our generation and really, especially for later generations. Ah, that's like a hundred years ago. (laughs) I can't relate to that, but you know, when you kind of dig down and see what it was and see the lack of opportunities that there were, especially in the sports field for African-American players, it was, it was pretty, pretty mind boggling. Now I think when, and when Kenny Washington's growing up, it's like, okay, there are no black players in the NFL. It was, it was not accepted, but it was like, okay, that's the way it is. Here's my option. I'm going to play for the Hollywood bears. It's a semi-pro league. They're giving me money. I can still play. Um, it's it's better than nothing. But still, it's not the right thing. You know, it's right. not not fair. And 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 you know now by by today's standards, even anyone looking back and, and saying, "Hey, the best college football player in the country could not play in in today's NFL because they didn't allow black players." That seems absurd, mm-hmm. right? But that was that was exactly the case. When, when Kenny Washington finished his, his college career, one of the great college careers of all time. It's a great book, ladies and gentlemen. You have to pick it up. Keyshawn Johnson and Bob Glauber collaborated on The Forgotten First. Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, Marion Motley, Bill Willis, and the breaking of the NFL color barrier. It's New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Coming up, what can you expect from Super Bowl 56? Bob Glauber explains next. This is New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. Let's conclude my discussion with President of the Football Writers of America, Newsday columnist Bob Glauber. Now, of course, I can't have Bob Glauber, veteran columnist of the National Football League, president of the Football Writers Association on Super Bowl Sunday, not talk about the Super Bowl. That, that, that would be criminal. So first, I, before I talk about this year, Bob, take me back. Can you compare last year's Super Bowl buildup to what you have this year because of COVID and the pandemic and all the things that were going on where we were a year ago? Uh, no, I can't. You know why? Because I wasn't there. Because mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't go because of COVID. That tells you right there, right? First time, first first game I'd missed, um, first Super Bowl I had missed since the 1988, last time the Bengals were in it. Uh, wow. Boomer Esiason's 1988 loss to, to Joe Montana. I, I, you know, it is what it is. You know, it just did, didn't work out. But so I think the, there is a tremendous difference, just in terms of you know, it's 
that the media is here, it seems much more normal. Yes, mm. you know, we wear masks and there are mask mandates in California, but you know, it's it it feels, Larry, like it's kind of back to to what it what it was. Um, and and that's obviously a good thing. And I think there'll be the, the, the level of excitement at the game will be tremendous. Um, that stadium, Larry, is like, I don't often say this because I've been in a, a bunch of stadiums. I've been in good stadiums. I've been in dumps. But, man, this stadium, it's exciting to go in. And I've never felt that way about a stadium before. And this place is an architectural marvel, and it's, um, it's, it's fantastic. From the scoreboard to the seating to the you know, architecture of the, the, the way the, the outside is, it's, it's an incredible athletic facility. One day we're going to have to have, have that discussion of which were the top five dumps <laughs> of stadiums that you had to cover for uh, Paulie Fencing. I'll tell you right now, the Vet, number one dump. LA, oh, yeah. LA uh, Oakland Coliseum, number two dump. FedEx Field, number three dump. And um, I don't know. Uh, the old Cincinnati Stadium is four, and, and the old New England Stadium, five. Boom, done. Wow. <laughs> Off the top of your head. And listen, and and Philly's and Philly wins by a landslide, right? And there's still a dump. <laughs> because the turf is still yeah. bad. Oh no, Philly's good now. The, the turf is still bad though, Bob. <laughs> uh well it's that's what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. It's better than it was. Listen, we'll give him credit. It's better than it was. There's no doubt about that. All right, take us through this game today. We've got the Rams and the Bengals, and obviously Listen, everybody loves the hot young quarterback, and that's what Joe Burrow has become. And he's played well. He he deserves the adulation. But now is you know he's facing a defense, and this is the this is the consummate line. I know you've used it, and we've all used it. I mean, he got sacked nine times earlier in the, in the postseason. What can this Rams defense do? You know, I think that Larry is the the key point here. And Burrow got away with it, and the, and the Bengals got away with it against the Titans. You know, partly, in large part, because Titans' offense couldn't capitalize. Titans' offense is just not built to score points. And Joey Cool, Joe Cool, Joey Bucket, whatever his nickname is at the moment, he he got it done against um, a really good Titans defense. But I think this Rams defense is a little bit different in in this respect. They have as good a line, if not a better line, than Tennessee. You know, you got Von Miller coming from one side. You got Aaron Donald coming from up the middle. You've got, you know, good pass rushers. You've got a, you know, good blitzing defense. Raheem Morris is calling great, great games. Um, and you also have Jalen Ramsey. So, so that to me is the difference here. Jalen Ramsey might be the difference maker in this game mm. because against the Titans, when, when Burrow sacked nine times, Jamar Chase dominated. So they didn't have really a cornerback to, to keep up with him. But Ramsey, if he can kind of win that one on one matchup with Jamar Chase, that's really going to put a lot of pressure on on Joe Burrow and, and make it much more difficult. And, you know, the Rams, you know, have a much better offense, an offense that is designed to score in bunches and, and is not like, like Tennessee. So I, I do give the Rams the edge here. Will I be shocked if, if Joe Burrow pulls it out? Absolutely not. You know, this guy is a kind of seems like a legend in the making, and, and if he wins it, that, that legend will grow, in, you know, immeasurably. But, but just matchup-wise, I, I do like the Rams in this one. Um, so... Uh, that that's that's what I'm going with. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. As well, you should. Uh, last thing, 
Take me through the coaching matchup here because sometimes we, we, we overlook it. You know, we talk about everything that's on the field, and, you know, I'm kind of curious how these coaches match up in your eyesight. You know, I think they match up pretty well. Like, you got to give Zach Taylor uh, of the Bengals a lot of credit. You know, just his third year, it looked like he might be on the outs after second year, although that, that wasn't going to be the case because Mike Brown doesn't like paying unemployed coaches. Um, so he gets that shot. He's a good, bright, young mind who, who knows Sean McVay, having worked for him. But I think McVay, you know, having that Super Bowl loss four years ago to the, mm. to the Patriots probably taught him something. And I think it probably taught him about, you better go for it here. You can't, you can't play not to lose. You just cannot do that here. You've got to be aggressive, play to win. And he generally operates like that. Um, and, and I think that's, that's going to have to be the case. And, and this has been a resilient team. Um, and, and McVay, I think, will have a good plan. And I think having had the experience of being in a Super Bowl and maybe being overwhelmed a little bit by the coach across the way and Bill Belichick, um, I think that should serve him well in this one. So I'll, I'll give the coaching edge to him. All right. That sounds good. Listen, my friend, enjoy the game. Give our regards to Keyshawn. You and him put together a tremendous book. And um, – Make sure, ladies and gentlemen, that you go out and pick it up. I know I've said it before. I'm going to tell you one more time. The name of the book, The Forgotten First, by Keyshawn Johnson and Bob Glauber, Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Marion Motley, Bill Willis, and The Breaking of the NFL Color Barrier. Bob, my friend, stay safe, travel safe, and we'll talk soon. Sounds great, Larry. Thank you very much for having me. As always, I look forward to seeing you soon, my man. All right, my pleasure, Bob. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening. We'll join you during the week on ESPN New York tonight with Gordon Damer and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my incredible, all-world, legendary, talented producer, primetime Ray Santiago, and the coach, who is Anthony Pusick, I'm Larry Hardesty. Enjoy your Super Bowl Sunday from all of us here on 98.7 ESPN.